On Thursday, September 27, 2018, Joseph Connors, Assistant Professor of Economics at the Barney Barnett School of Business and Free Enterprise at Florida Southern College, delivered an address entitled Extreme Poverty Takes a Fall as part of the Acton on Tap event series. His talk was delivered at the Knickerbocker at New Holland Brewing Company in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Acton on Tap is a series of informal and complimentary talks on a variety of issues, sponsored by the Acton Alumni Association. Here now with his address is Joseph Connors. When Patrick first uh, emailed me about coming up to give this talk, uh, my thought was, uh, okay, I, I'm going to discuss nerdy econ stuff in a bar. So yeah, that's that's a pretty easy one to say yes to. So, um, so unfortunately, you guys have to listen to me uh, talk about this stuff, which is what I normally subject my students to, and they usually have to sit there for an hour. So I think I'm going to cramp it down. So we'll just do a half hour, and then we'll have questions and so forth. Um, but some of the things that uh, Brett brought up and that Patrick has brought up. Uh, I'm used to, so I've done research on poverty topics and development for a while, so I'm used to running into people who don't know that much about the topic, and I cringe when they say stuff. Um, so uh, there was two recent examples. Uh, I was This summer I was vacationing over on, on the San Juan Islands. I know it's interesting to start a topic on poverty, talking about vacationing in the San Juan Islands. but. Um, so I was over there, and I was going to Mass Sunday morning. I'm at Mass, and the priest dives into his homily, and he talks about how uh, today in the world, poverty is so bad that 4 in 10 people in the world today go to bed hungry, starving. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, that is so not true. Um, but of course, it's Mass. I'm not going to go correct him uh, in the middle of Mass. Um, I, you know, that'd be a little uncalled for. Um, but, I mean, that's something that I see often. I'm sure many of you have been in different situations where you've heard people say similar things. Uh, another narrative that's common, in fact, this was just a Sunday or two ago, um, uh, the priest was talking about uh, the rich oppressing the poor, right? It was a Bible passage that, had, that was relating to that. Uh, and he was going on and on about how it happens today. And my thoughts was, okay, look, I don't doubt that there are maybe some occasional rich people today who do oppress the poor. But as like a blanket statement, like, I, I don't know how Bill Gates oppressed the poor. Like, I don't, like, and, and that's the thing that a lot of times people lose sight of in a market economy is that for the most part, you get rich if you serve other people, like if you help other people. And I know, Brett, you kind of talked about entrepreneurship a couple weeks back. Um, so that, that's a key component that I think a lot of people lose sight of. Um, and so these kind of the misperception about poverty, the fact that most people think poverty is getting worse. Uh, and another uh, common theme is that inequality is getting worse, right? We hear that quite a bit, that inequality has gotten pretty bad. Um, I think there's two two things that kind of drive it. Uh, one, if your narrative is generally hostile to free markets, right, then you, you don't want to say, man, things are awesome. We need to change. Uh, that's just not going to get adherence, right? And so I don't want to drag politics into it too much, but I mean, if you're, if you're Bernie Sanders, you're, you're not going to sell your agenda by talking about how great things are. Um, so there's that aspect of it. There is if, if you're trying to you know, convince people of something that is generally not terribly favorable of markets, then you're, you're not going to want to say that, man, things are great. Um, <clears throat> I think the second thing is that uh, for the most part, a lot of times it's hard for people to understand how trade and exchange works. And it's very common for people to think about trade and exchange as being a zero sum. There's a winner and a loser, right? So if I trade with somebody, um, one of us is going to win, one of us is going to lose, right? Um, and as I'm sure many of you can know here, you're business people, right? that, that's not the way the market works, right? The mar exchange is a positive sum game, right? Both parties in exchange uh, benefit. 
And so if you have that mentality of exchange is kind of a zero-sum game, there's a winner and a loser, it's very easy to see, think that, oh, the you know, poor are getting poor, the rich are getting richer, that sort of thing. So it turns out, and I'm here to tell you, uh, the opposite is occurring, right? Um, now, if it was 1820, 1850, you could talk about how, yes, the poor are getting poorer. Um, but today, again, we still have a lot of progress to make against poverty. Uh, but today, the poor have gotten much richer, right? And we'll, uh, it's a talk, but uh, it is isn't a bar. So I do have some graphics. I'll save them to the end so I don't bore you too much. Um, but there's been huge reductions. Uh, of poverty in the last 35 years. Um, in fact, uh, right in 1980, three-fourths of the developing world's population lived on $2 a day or less. Now it's below a third, right? and that's 35 years. So it's interesting to hear the narrative that the poor are worse off when they've never been better off. right? And again, I'm not saying we're there. We still have a long way to go. There's still you know, a little over 700 million people who still live in kind of pretty rough poverty. Uh, but from where we used to be, man, it's pretty impressive. Um, so uh, what I thought I would do is try to kind of tell a story about how all of this came about. So in the beginning, no. Um, but what I'm going to do is kind of go back to the Industrial Revolution. Because what has happened over time is starting with the Industrial Revolution. So before the Industrial Revolution, there was tons of equality. And everyone was just poor and destitute. It was awful. Um, but starting with the Industrial Revolution, we actually do see a huge increase in global inequality. Right? It turns out the Industrial Revolution only really affects 15% you know, of the world's population. Right? Uh, the Industrial Revolution really only impacts 20, 21 countries. And then it stops. So from about 1800 to about 1950, uh, it was a story of the poor staying poor uh, and wealthy countries growing wealthier. Right? Um, and, and the kind of the explanation for that is very much one that Acton has been preaching. Right? Those 20, 21 countries had the, what we call institutions. Right? They had a political system and an economic system that embraced freedom. Right? Um, and so they had a system that protected property rights. So the Industrial Revolution uh, was amazing, but it only worked if you could accumulate capital and to have factories. Right? Was, that's why we call it the Industrial Revolution. You had to have a factory. right? But to have a factory, you have to accumulate capital. You have to accumulate large amounts of wealth. Well, that only happens in places where your stuff's not going to be stolen. Right? It only happens in places where your property rights are protected, where you're free to be entrepreneurial, where you're free to take risks, right? where you have a market. Right? And so this is why the Industrial Revolution only happens and only spreads in a handful of countries, right? about 20 countries. And it doesn't spread beyond that. Right? It doesn't really spread to Africa, uh, even until the World War II. Um, so, the, the kind of market story is, is part of the story. It kind of explains why there was actually growing inequality roughly from about 1800 to about 1950. Um, but something starts to happen in the 1950s and 1960s. So this kind of growing inequality between rich countries and poor countries uh, starts to slow down. Okay, And I'll, I'll show some graphics later. But I just want to tell my story first. Um, so it, it starts to slow down, right? Um, and it's interesting. And so economists have been trying to debate over a lot of these topics for a while to figure out what's going on. Um, but what really is going on, and this is the part that I think is pretty cool, is starting in the 1950s and 1960s, generally what begins is what we would kind of call the transportation communication revolution, OK? Um, what it means is that it's now really cheap and really easy to get stuff anywhere in the world, to get information anywhere in the world. Right? I mean, the internet doesn't come along till later, but at least the ability to ship stuff, the, uh, the marvelous shipping container that's on those semi-trucks, so when you're in traffic and you're cursing at those semi-trucks because uh, they're taking up valuable space on the road and backing things up, 
that was actually a, a pretty novel invention. Um, so it suddenly becomes easier and cheaper for countries that don't have good institutions. They don't have protection of property rights. They don't have a lot of the things that countries like the U.S. and Western Europe have. Um, but it turns out with the transportation communication revolution, you don't have to have perfect institutions, right? You can plug in and integrate into the global economy um, where you're at. And this is generally what we've seen taking place from starting in 1950, 1960, and all the way through today, especially today. Right? If you're a farmer in Africa, right, you can pull out a cell phone and you can look up what the world price of corn or soybeans or whatever you're growing is, right? And you can figure out who to sell it to. Right? Long ago, you just sold it. And actually, well, Africa is a whole different situation. But they used to have, or in the, some countries still do, but these farm boards where a lot of times they were forced to sell at rock bottom prices, right? But now, I mean, people in many different countries have access to global markets, right? Um, and so what starts to happen in the 1950s and 1960s is developing countries start, they're able to plug in to the international market and they start to grow, right? And this is where we see South Korea take off, this is where we see Taiwan take off, um, and again, eventually India and China in the 80s and 90s. Um, and the interesting thing is we think about markets, we think about property rights and institutions, right? Um, it now is very advantageous to start to improve some of those institutions, and that is exactly what we have seen. Countries that have opened up and started plugged into international markets their trade barriers start to come down, uh, and they've actually gotten much better with their money and financial systems, right? So they plug into the global economy, and they realize, man, there's a ton of benefits that are to be had here, right? And so whereas the Industrial Revolution was kind of inequality enhancing, right, this transportation uh, communication revolution is kind of working in the opposite direction, right? It's inequality reducing. And so what happens is that growing inequality that had started since the Industrial Revolution slows down in the 1950s and 60s, uh, and it kind of remains flat, but really starting in the 80s and 90s, starts to accelerate in the opposite direction. And I'll show you some graphs in a little bit. Um, and it really starts to go down starting in 2000. So even in starting in 2000, Africa has actually grown quite a bit. Africa's average per capita income growth rate is about 6%. Right. Um, the rest of the developing world is also about five or six percent as well. Right. So it's starting to grow pretty drastically. Um, the other, uh, there was one other thing I was going to say on that. Oh yeah. So the, the inequality has started to reduce as well, and we'll take a look at some of those. Hang on, got to look at my notes real quick. Last my train of thought. Uh, hang on. Oh yeah, so the poverty part. Um, so there's two things. So yeah, it is about poverty. Um, uh, and this is also where we see poverty starting to decline as well. Um, there's also a, a, another kind of part of the story that's, that's kind of going on here. Uh, we'll talk about that. I think in the Q&A, it might be better to address it there. Uh, but there's also some demographic changes that has been going on. Because what's happened, actually, is since 2000, developing countries have been starting to grow. Okay? And actually, the old wealthy countries, us, the ones that experienced the Industrial Re Revolution, our, our growth rates are starting to slow down. Right? Uh, and part of the issue is we're, we're getting old. <laughs> um, so the developing world is fairly young. Right? The, the high-income world is starting to age, okay? um, and this affects productivity. So this, in a way, this is both good and bad news. Um, bad news for us, I guess. Uh, but good news for the developing world because it means these trends will continue. It means income inequality will continue to decline. Right? Poverty rates will continue to fall. Um, because these demographic trends are going to continue, okay? So we kind of have basically kind of three periods, 
Right? We have the Industrial Revolution to the 1950s and 60s. Uh, we have the 1950s and 60s till 2000. And then starting in 2000, we see even more drastic reductions in poverty. Okay. okay. Uh, let me look back at my notes again. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Africa, uh, because I'm assuming at some point in the Q&A that will pop up into people's minds. Um, so oftentimes when people think, well, they'll say, okay, sure, so poverty is kind of declining, but it's an India and China story, right? So China and India are the countries that have had massive reductions. Um, so it turns out that's not the case. Obviously, China and India have had the largest reductions in poverty. And, and I'm okay with that because there's about a billion people in India and about a billion people in China. So that's a large chunk of the world's population. So if a large chunk of the world's population is exiting poverty, I'm gonna be all right with that. Um, but uh, the same story has happened in Latin America, right? Uh, and it's actually starting to happen in Africa. Uh, Africa, though, faces some unique challenges. Um, so malaria is a big problem that Africa deals with. Uh, but um, the malaria picture is getting better as well. So since 2000, and this is why I kind of keyed in on 2000 as kind of an important point in, of time. Um, since 2000, both deaths from malaria and the incidence of malaria, that is, uh, people who get malaria um, have, have fallen, right? And at the same time, we've actually seen Africa's growth rates uh, pick up, okay? So um, Africa has some extra hurdles to get through compared to many other countries. There's all kinds of other things. Uh, Africa is still a very tribal place in a way. There's a lot of tribal law. Uh, also, languages, there's so many different ethnicities and languages uh, that it's very hard. Uh, if you travel somewhere else to trade, you can't communicate with that other person. Um, so there's some unique challenges in Africa, but uh, I think Africa is getting better. Uh, Rwanda, for example, has had really good growth, um, obviously, since the 90s. Uh, they had a really dark period there with their genocide. Uh, but after that, things have improved quite a bit. Um, so I think Africa presents kind of some unique challenges. Um, but for the most part, uh, the story on poverty is actually a good one. So let's take a look now actually at the data so I can prove to you that this is what's going on. So let's think about this story. Um, so I'm going to look first at inequality, OK? And I'll get out of the way so that you, can you guys see? I'll stand over here. Okay. Um, I'm showing PowerPoint slides in a bar. Okay. Um, um, so the story I, I, I told you was starting in the 1800s. So if you're way in the back, that bar way over there on the left, that's early 1800s. That's 1820. Okay. Um, what this is showing is actually cross-country income inequality. Okay. Um, and sure enough, what we see is starting with the Industrial Revolution, right, income inequality grows. Right? So higher numbers means the global, the world is becoming more unequal. Okay? Um, and as you can see, that continues on up until the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And as you can see, this trend starts to slow down. Right? And it's through this trend between 1960, let's say, and roughly 1995, 2000, that the, that's kind of increasing income inequality starts to slow down, okay? And that's essentially what's going on in this period is the developing world slowly starting to plug in into international and global markets. And of course, starting in 95 and 2000, we see a drastic reduction in um, global inequality, okay? Now, uh, the next slide I'm gonna show you, uh, this is what most people like to focus on when they talk about inequality, right? Most people today, when they talk about inequality, they're talking about inequality within a particular country, okay? Um, and usually it's talked about because Europe has 
a slightly more generous welfare state. There's a little bit more redistribution going on. And so if you look at the data, um, there's a slight uptick in U.S. inequality. People debate the data. Uh, and there's a slight decrease in inequality in Europe. Okay? So this is why oftentimes if people want to promote kind of a large social democracy, social welfare state, they will point to Europe, say it's much more equal, where the U.S. is growing unequal. But what I, I like about these graphs and I want to point out is that, okay, sure, so this is within country inequality. And since the 1960s, you know, within some countries, it's grown a little more unequal, okay? So there's been inside country transitions, okay? Um, but those are tiny compared to if you then kind of combine things together, okay? So if you basically come up with a, a, a true measure of global inequality, that is you treat everyone in the world as if they're the same, okay? Um, and you look to see what has happened to inequality over time, right? The story is one of growth and development in developing countries and falling inequality. So it turns out, right, the inequality we have now, right, is not as bad as even it was back in the 1960s. And in fact, the inequality, global inequality we have today is similar to what it was in about 1900, right? So in a span of about 35 years, right, a lot of that inequality that happened as a result, not as a result of the great, uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution, but the fact that the Industrial Revolution didn't spread anywhere else, right? All that inequality has essentially been reversed, right? The world has become much more equal, right? <clears throat> and so that's actually the more remarkable story. Now, let's talk about poverty. So there's a lot of ways to measure poverty. And again, I think most of you would be familiar with the fact that like, when we think about poverty in the US, it's very different than, say, poverty in Ghana or you know, somewhere else, that, or Bangladesh, or something like that, okay? Um, so usually when we're looking at poverty in the world, we're looking at uh, what we call the extreme and moderate poverty rate. Some of you might have heard is the $1 and $2 poverty rate. We'll get some nods, maybe, no? Okay. Um, so they started out, the World Bank is the one who came up with these numbers, um, and the idea is when they first started to measure it, they wanted to find out, okay, what's the percentage of a country's population that lives off of a dollar a day, okay? So that's the $1 poverty rate, or what's known as the extreme poverty rate. So this is, this is pretty rough, right? I mean, that means if it was in today's terms, it means you get one item off the McDonald's value menu uh, a day, and that's it, right? Again, it's not the same thing, but um, it's pretty rough, okay? Um, the $2 a day rate, roughly, is what we call moderate poverty. So what these generally mean in poor countries is that if you live on a dollar a day, it's pretty rough to actually get adequate nutrition. You're generally not going to have much in the way of housing, right? Um, so extreme poverty is pretty extreme. That's why it's called extreme. Um, so moderate poverty at $2 a day, you can generally get at least a decent diet, and you might have some, some type of housing. Right? It might not be great, it might be more of a shanty type thing, but at least you have some type of housing. But you can't afford much beyond that. Right? So this is what we're talking about when we talk about poverty in the developing world. Now, because of changing currencies and so forth, uh, the actual values, the $1 a day today is about $190. They got a 90 cent raise. Um, and the, the $2 a day is now to about $320. But again, that's just adjusting for changes in exchange rates and inflation and so forth. Um, Okay, so extreme poverty is $1 a day, moderate poverty is $2 a day, okay? So what I've got up here is essentially the graph or the trend, and actually maybe I should stand over here, that way I'm not blocking everybody. No, that's bad, feedback. Um, I'll just back into here. Right, so in 1980, one of the things I mentioned was that three-fourths of the developing world's population lived on $2 a day or less, right? Um, and so that was 1980, right? Almost 60% of the developing world lived on $1 a day, right? That's extreme, not adequate nutrition, um, right? These are people who still live in kind of the world described by Thomas Hobbes, where you know, life is 
nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Right? Um, but from 1980 to today, right, extreme poverty has fallen down to below 15%, right? and that's in 2015. Uh, I need to get the latest data and update it. It's usually delayed by a few years, so this is, this is about as recent as you're going to get. Um, so it's fallen down below 15%, right? and the moderate poverty rate is down below 33%, so it's 31%, so it's less than a third. Right? Um, so this means that over a billion people in the span of 25 years no longer live in poverty. Right? That's, that's pretty remarkable. That's pretty stinking cool. Right? Um, so the story isn't one of the world's getting poorer and so forth. Right? Um, the world's getting wealthier. Right? The world's getting more equal. Okay? Poverty rates are falling. There's still a long way to go, as you can see, right? Still roughly a third of the developing world. Again, this is just of the developing world. So a third of the developing world still lives under $2 a day or less, right? So there's still work to be done, right? Um, and we still have the extreme poverty rate. It's down around 14%. Um, but if this trend continues, I mean, your lifetime, probably pretty cool that extreme poverty will probably be eliminated. I mean, I think that's good news. Um, so the, the doom and gloom that typically gets preached is a little, a little weird. Um, so that, that's essentially what's been going on in, with poverty today and so forth. And I think I'm getting close to my half hour. Uh, so let's stop there and let's dive into questions. First question. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. Okay, okay. Your graph, uh, does that incorporate the reduction in population, birth population? Is that incorporated into that equation also? Or is that not? Yeah, so uh, that does account for population. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, uh, so his question was, and I'm trying, was it Alexander? Andrew. What? Andrew. Andrew, that's right, because I met Andrew earlier. I was trying to remember his name. Uh, he asked, does this graph here, or does the data account for changes in population? Uh, yeah, so it does. It's a percentage. Uh, so it is accounting for the share of a country's population. So therefore, if a country grows, or the way to think about it is, if a country grew and um, the percentage of the share in poverty stay the same, it would be more people are in poverty than before. So this is as a share of the total population. So the way to think about it is, uh, if you have a growing population, that means if this is falling, that means less and less people are living in poverty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? So, uh, so her question was, uh, could I discuss how foreign aid uh, entrenches poverty? Um, yeah, so let's, let's chat about foreign aid. Um, so I'm assuming quite a few of you have seen Poverty, Inc., the, the Acton series. That was definitely a good one. If you have not seen Poverty, Inc. or Poverty Cure, definitely watch it. Figured I'd get a plug for Acton in there. Uh, there we go. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so, okay, so foreign aid's always an interesting one to discuss. Um, my view in general with foreign aid is that if you, if you think, if, you, if your view is that you think foreign aid will cause a country to grow and become prosperous, that's not the case, right? So if, if, if you look at the analysis, if you look at the data, you look at the studies, um, for the most part, there is no countrywide discernible impact, po positive impact from foreign aid, right? So it has not caused poor countries to grow. Uh, it has not caused growth miracles uh, and so forth, right? Um, now, can you say that on some micro level, foreign aid has done some good? Yeah, right? I mean, it probably put some fresh water in some places. We've talked about malaria, mosquito nettings, uh, and so forth. 
one of the issues with even those micro level projects is that there's not the knowledge and the know-how to sustain it. So you can, you can put in a well, you can put in water, you can put in all these things, but as soon as you leave, oftentimes it decays. Not all the times, but oftentimes it decays. Right? There's a notable story of, uh, I think it was uh, Bill Easterly, who used to work for the World Bank. Um, they were doing this water project in a village and they put in a holding tank and uh, they had a pump and they pumped up the, into the holding tank, they could get fresh water. And so they ran a water line down to the middle of town. They put a spigot up there so that people could fill up their buckets and take the fresh, clean water back to their homes, use it for cooking. It was great. Right, so they set all this stuff up. They even trained people to maintain it and you know, keep it productive. Uh, they came back, I think it was six months later, not too much later, uh, and the system was defunct. Right? It was leaking, it wasn't working anymore. What they discovered is that people saw this you know, spigot sticking up out of the ground, and they're like, man, that's great for tying livestock to. So they would tie, and this, I mean, this is the thing, you, right, it, it, like, we, and this is what oftentimes we do with foreign aid, is we come in with Western ideas and Western values and what we think should happen, and we say, impose this. Right? A lot of times they may not understand it. Maybe that's not what they want. Um, and so in that sense, it's kind of been uh, ineffective, even on a micro level. Now, what you're really getting at is, is foreign aid part of the problem? Right? Um, yeah, it is part of the problem. Um, and one of the issues is, and this is something also Bill Easterly has dealt with as well, is that you have a lot of international organizations that solely exist to combat poverty, right? Um, this makes it very difficult for them to give out foreign aid in an effective way, right? Because oftentimes we think about, okay, if we're, if we're gonna have foreign aid go into a country and do some good, you could say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna you know, make you do things. We're gonna make you jump through hoops. You've gotta reduce corruption or you've gotta implement government reforms or stuff like that. Um, it never works because the International Aid Agency solely exists to give out aid. I mean, what good is an International Aid Agency if it's not giving out foreign aid? I mean, it's not doing anything. Um, and so the way it generally works is that um, some uh, development economists call it a kabuki dance. Um, the, uh, or as the Soviets used to say, like they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Um, but what happens is, is, is these, the governments of these countries that get foreign aid, they promise certain reforms, they get the initial amount of aid, uh, they don't do the reforms. Uh, the aid agencies say, you're supposed to do these reforms, they come up with different excuses and they promise new reforms, they give more of the aid, and they kind of go through this whole rigmarole again. So I would say the pernicious part is that it does entrench corrupt, defunct governments. A lot of times it, it does keep them in power, right? Um, now, if those dictators were gone and out of power, uh, in some countries a new set of dictators would come in. Again, a lot of times, we're dealing with, especially in Africa, uh, a lot of the law and custom there uh, is very tribal. Um, and so usually a, a, a dictator in Africa usually comes from a particular tribe. And not just dictator, but president or whoever. They come from a particular tribe. And so when they're in power, their tribe does fairly well. So yes, foreign aid entrenches some of those dictators. And if you could get rid of that, would it be better? I mean, you would maybe you just have more dictators rotating through, but at least you wouldn't have the entrenchment of the dictators that are there. Um, so, in general, I'm not as optimistic on foreign aid. So, yes. So, in follow up to what you just said, sure. do you think the problem in Africa may be uh, educating the populace? How do we how do we break the cycle in Africa? Um, so, this is a good question. So, our question is, uh, in terms of trying to you know, get Africa going, is, is educating the population 
going to help. Um, I mean, education helps up to a point. Uh, the issue, and this is one of the things that many developing countries have faced, is that if they don't have some of the institutions and the markets right, right, if you don't have anything there that fosters entrepreneurship, if people become educated, they leave. So if you become educated in Africa, you, you get the heck out. Right? You, you go somewhere where the returns to your human capital are greater. Right? And the returns to human capital in Africa aren't that great yet. Um, I'm generally of the view that uh, right, reforms need to come from within Africa. Whatever we do, we basically need to empower people in Africa right, to, uh, to want to become educated. Um, and and not, it doesn't have to be you go get a college degree, but you know, like we forget the United States used to be a poor uh, developing country, right? And for the most part, right, we even know people, well, I'm younger, so, but I even know people who were my grandparents and so forth, they didn't have much in terms of an education. I think my grandfather had an eighth grade education. He worked in a machine shop. By the time I knew him, he was three fingers down. Uh, he only had seven fingers, but he could still play poker. He could still shuffle cards. Um, <laughs> that he could do. That he could do very well. Um, and so, um, it. And you're right. It doesn't take a lot of education to be able to at least learn a trade or a craft. Um, and I think it has to start there. Um, but I think I think ultimately a lot of the solutions have to come from Africa. And we can't stand in the way. I think a lot of times with our initiatives, we do stand in the way sometimes because we come in and we're like, hey, we're the West. We know best. Let's do this. It's like, no, no I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the right, the right answer. Um, but education will help. I think if people wanted to help with education, right, go do an orphanage or a school. Um, my advisor's son, uh, um, his name is Mark Wartney. He runs an orphanage in Uganda. He's got a couple hundred kids there. They have a school. They, um, so I think stuff like that is, is great. Um, but uh, education will help. I don't know if it's a silver bullet, though. Yeah? How would you respond to someone that says socialism or some sort of redistribution is, one, responsible for that decline in poverty, or they claim that it's the solution for ah. eliminating it? OK. Um, yeah, the, uh, the uh, theory that explains everything explains nothing. Um, yeah, so his, his question was, what would you say to, uh, to people who would say socialism is the cause of a lot of the uh, poverty in, in Africa or Latin America? Or on the flip side, those who say socialism is, socialism is the, the solution to it? Um, OK, so a couple things. Um, for the first part, that is socialism causing it. I mean, it's true there were a lot of Marxist revolutions in Africa. So uh, after a lot of the colonial powers left, after World War II, a lot of them left Africa, there very much was an anti-Europe backlash. Right? They basically, w there was very much a backlash against colonial powers. Right? And that backlash ended up embracing communism, Marxism. In a way, right, um, a lot of the corrupt institutions and bad policies and rules and bad governance, that was already there, right? Um, and so Marxism, communism just makes it worse, right? Um, and so oftentimes you just kind of see the Marxist ideas slapped onto something that's already kind of bad, even though generally I'm a big fan of Marxism. Um, and that's why I think the, the book uh, Animal Farm is great. right? Because it really, if you haven't read Animal Farm, actually it would be very relevant now. Um, I highly recommend reading it. Uh, but it, it kind of really addresses the, the rationalizations that people go through when, they're, when the ends are justifying the means. right? Um, and so I think. Um, now, to the second part, uh, I think if countries adopt socialist policies, that's the quickest way to become poor. 
uh, just look at Venezuela, right? Um, so I think socialism doesn't explain why there's poverty. Uh, it doesn't explain why there's poverty in many of these countries. Uh, I think it makes it worse, uh, and it, it wouldn't necessarily help. Now, the reason why it wouldn't necessarily help is because um, in a, in a you know, communist, socialist-style system, um, there aren't a lot of incentives there uh, to be entrepreneurial, right? to take risk, uh, to actually help other people. Um, if we look at surviving kind of socialist places today, we're talking about North Korea, Cuba, um, and Venezuela is trying real fast to get there. Um, they're trying. But, uh, right, and in those places, you generally see poverty, starvation. I have a student in my class this semester. She's from Venezuela. And, she, I mean, she is, her, her parents are still there. I mean, she just tells me every day about how bad things are there. Um, and so, <clears throat> so, yeah, the narrative of socialism will help with poverty. No, I mean, no. <laughs> um, and again, the fall of the Soviet Union allowed us to see this firsthand, right? When the Soviet Union fell, we realized that their per capita income was nowhere near what it was in the West, right? Um, in communism, you just, there's just no incentives to create wealth, right? There's incentives to hide wealth, to steal wealth, right? Um, whereas in a market-type system, it's not perfect, right? Um, but it's the best we got, right? Um, People have an incentive to innovate, to serve people, to create, to take risks. Um, and those are the things, right? When people do that, that's how you reduce poverty. Yeah. Yes? So some people might say that uh, the decrease in moderate and extreme poverty mm -hmm. in the last, since 1980 might be uh, more the result of the miracle that's happened in China since 1980. So do you have some <laughs> they've got their own business, and so it, I mean, it really is a miracle in China. Yeah. So how do you respond to something like that? Yeah. So uh, her question was, um, how, how do I know that, that this story is not just China, right? Uh, it's not just the reforms that China implemented. Um, so now, what's happened in China is pretty remarkable. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's great, the fact that a country of a billion people uh, their poverty rate has fallen down to, their extreme poverty rate is well below 10%, right? Um, so China's a success story. Uh, it's not the whole story, though, right? So one of the things that when we hear about China, we often forget. Uh, so China, and as I think about it this way, right? So the eastern side of China is where you've had a lot of the growth, development, innovation, and so forth. As you go inland, as you go way into the western parts of China, it's still fairly poor. Yeah, so but they're all, they're all moving. They're all moving from there to yes. the south side. Yes. So, yeah, so there has been huge demographic transitions to the cities, which actually the government is now trying to prevent a bit because there's too many people moving into the urban areas. Uh, and they've actually created kind of a card system. So if you get a card and it's, and you move to an urban area and you're not supposed to be there, you can't have access to any of the social services and stuff like that. So they're actually trying to prevent, because a lot of that happened. Starting in the 1980s and through to the 1990s, it was pretty laissez-faire in terms of people being able to migrate to the cities because there was jobs and so forth. They're trying to limit some of that now. Um, so China's come a long way, uh, but if you look at the data, uh, and I didn't put the slides in here. Later, I can pull it up and show you. Uh, but the same trends exist for Latin America. Um, not for Africa, but actually, if you look at their poverty rates, they stay solid all the way to about 2000, and then they start to decline. So the decline has occurred in Africa after 2000. But in the rest of the world, whether it's Southeast Asia, whether it's Latin America, um, this same type of decline has occurred. 
Latin America start. Latin America wasn't as poor as China was when it started out, um, and so their declines aren't as drastic because they weren't as poor. But the same type of declines have occurred in Latin America. Yeah. So China is a big part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. The same kind of reductions have happened pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, latest data on the United States, um, for the most part, uh, the United States doesn't have this level of poverty. It's fairly low that it doesn't show up in this measure. So the poverty rates we measure here in the United States are very different. Um, the way the poverty rates are calculated is usually for a family of four. Um, that generally, that threshold determine who's in poverty is generally around these days around $22,000 a year. So very different from one or two dollars a day. Um, the interesting thing in the United States, um, for the most part, our kind of U.S. version of the poverty rate uh, has kind of been kicking around 10%. Again, we have a relative poverty rate. We always adjust it for kind of three times what it costs for a family of four to kind of feed itself is how we roughly figure out the poverty rate in the U.S. Um, but it, it has roughly been around 10, 11, 12, maybe 13% since the 1970s. Uh, there really has not been any reductions in our measurements of poverty basically since the 1970s. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so that... That statistic is, so what, what he was getting at is what, what's kind of happened in poverty in the U.S., right? So the poverty in the U.S. Is a, is a different type of story, right? Our poverty is not like this type of poverty, okay? Um, and the way we measure poverty is roughly you figure out how much it costs to feed a family of four. You multiply that by three. It's really scientific way the BLS comes up with this. Um, <laughs> So you multiply that by three, uh, and that's, what you, that's how you come up with the threshold of poverty in the United States. Right? So for an individual, I think it's about 18,000. For a family of four, it's about 22,000. So if you live on 22,000 or less, you're a family of four, then you're considered to be in poverty in the US. So that rate has actually uh, not declined since the 1970s. Okay? So, the issue with that is that uh, is the way we measure it, right? Uh, it's not terribly scientific. Um, it's a relative milestone for poverty. This is an absolute milestone, right? This is a certain amount of money per day adjusted for purchasing power, basically. The poverty rate in the U.S. is kind of a moving target. It's basically whatever, however much it costs to feed a family of four multiplied by three. So as costs rise, it becomes more expensive. The poverty rate rises as well. So as the poverty rate rises, you're generally going to have about the same percentage of people living in poverty. The interesting thing is that if you look at the U.S. poverty rate, it was declining all through from a Great Depression, even before onward, stalls out in the Great Depression, and it's declining, and it's declining, uh, and it stops. And it stops declining kind of in the 60s and 70s. So those of you that aren't a big fan of great society would point and be like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, so poverty rates actually in the U.S. were declining all the way to about the 1960s, 1970s. And they've basically been stagnant since then. One of the big issues is that it is a relative measure of poverty. It's not absolute. It's a changing benchmark. And that benchmark has been getting higher, and so the percent has stayed about the same. So there, there is discussion, there are talks of trying to change the way we measure poverty in the U.S. However, it does become political, right? Because some people want to measure it a different way so that poverty rate looks higher. Some people want to measure it another way so it looks lower. Um, and so really there's no change and we stay with this measurement of poverty that was created about 50 years ago. Yeah. Yes? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. True. And I, and I think we need to put ourselves in the standards of those who are living on one dollar a day, two dollar a day, to really get what poverty is about. Yeah, so he, he's, he was, his question was getting at, he just came back, it was Kenya, right? Um, and his question was, what, is, what would somebody say if, you know, they're in a refugee camp and their daughter was recently on the verge of death, they had needed medical care, and it's very expensive, it's hard for them to to pay for it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think our Western perspective, a lot of times we can't fathom that type of poverty, right? Um, and that's why I think when we think about our, our notions of poverty, they're very different from the notions of poverty in developing countries. So usually when I talk about poverty, that's why I usually chat about these measures of poverty, because this is much more relevant for them. At least it's a better measurement of the poverty that they live in. Um, now, in terms of how to help her directly, um, I mean, that's something that, again, I would say as a Christian, right, we're called upon to go and get involved, right? Um, I don't know if foreign aid, most foreign aid programs, a lot of times what foreign aid will do is they'll try to sponsor and uh, sponsor NGOs to go in and provide medical care and so forth. But the ability for some of those people to pay for those medical bills, I mean, I think that's where people doing charitable things can go in and, and help. Um, I think as a, as a broader macro country level, right, um, what's going to bring people out of poverty is, you know, people figuring out ways to get out of poverty. I, I don't think our... Western notions of how to help people are going to help them. Uh, I think we need to get out of their way. Um, but I think to deal with that type of intense need uh, poverty, I mean, I think that's where charity can play a role in, in all kinds of different forms. Um, yeah. Capitalism also needs to take its responsibility. After all, uh, if you go back to the colonial period, mm -hmm. not long in the United Kingdom, uh, and you see uh, both the strengths of what colonialism brought to Africa, but also uh, what it took from Africa. Yeah. And then when you think of Western countries today, you mentioned, you know, as soon as somebody's educated, somebody's bright, they get out of Africa. Well, instead of just Western powers accepting the brain drain from places like Africa, why don't we invest in Africans to go back to Africa to do what local Africans either will not or cannot do? Yeah, so, uh, so we, we touched on a lot of points there. Uh, key amongst them was uh, the fact that oftentimes, if you, for market people, socialism is a, is a good whipping boy. And you're right, we do, we do pick on it quite a bit. Um, deservedly so, no. Um, you mentioned China. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So uh, China is also an interesting case. So um, I would agree with you that uh, my view of markets uh, is not perfect, right? Uh, I would say it's the best system we have, um, is, but it's not perfect. Um, now, uh, I would say, especially for countries like Africa, I don't think socialism is to blame. I mean, there's so many other issues that they're dealing with there. Uh, again, malaria. Uh, there's, again, the way their laws are, it, it's much more tribal. And I'm assuming in Kenya, you probably ran across this with different types of tribes. 
language difficulties and stuff like that. So especially in Africa, I don't think socialism is the, the cause of much of what's going on down there. What you brought up with colonialism and what was left over after they left, uh, yeah, uh, that was pretty pernicious. Uh, for the most part, the rules and laws and things they incorporated down there uh, were fairly dictatorial, right? It, it didn't allow... It didn't allow markets, right, local Africans to engage in markets. In fact, uh, it largely was them extracting resources. And this is why they actually created what were called the agricultural boards. What it was is that if you were a farmer in most African countries, you grew your stuff, uh, but you had to sell it to these agricultural boards, which were originally set up and run by European powers. And what, you, what they would do is they would buy the agricultural goods uh, at just below market rates, like just cheap rates, ship it back to Europe or the US and sell it at the market rate and make lots of money off of this. Um, so a lot of policies like that were implemented by European governments. Right? Um, and the sad thing is, is after Europe left, Right? There very much was an anti-colonial sentiment. Um, and this is where some countries kind of tried to embrace Marxism. Uh, Ethiopia had its civil war. Um, the sad thing is, is kind of the new people who assumed power kept most of those agricultural boards. So for a very long time, those old colonial agricultural boards still existed. Um, and so... And so I, I don't think socialism is the problem down there. I think it's a lot of other bad rules and institutions. Um, yeah. 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 So he also pointed out AIDS as being a big issue. Um, one of the reasons why diseases are a big problem down there is they, they drain productivity, right? Um, you're wiping out productive parts of the population. This is why malaria is so bad, because it is debilitating uh, and it's hard to work, right? And so if it's hard to work, it's hard to create wealth, it's hard to do anything like that. Um, and this is why Africa especially has a lot of unique challenges. The geography, uh, the ethno-linguistic problems, the AIDS issue, malaria, uh, that's why they've had the least reductions in poverty because there's all these other extra issues. Yeah. yeah. I, I just wanted to point out that another factor that you haven't mentioned is that the nation states in Africa, their boundaries were drawn by colonial powers without regard to where the ethnic divisions occurred within the continent. Yeah. And that's also made governance far more difficult. Yeah, so, uh, and again, this is where we're still dealing with the after effects of colonialism. Um, yeah, the colonial powers came in and said, this is how we're going to divide things up. And then when they left, they left those structures there. Um, and so there still is dysfunctional. And that's why underneath it, I mean, a lot of things that are still run in Africa are often still influenced by tribal custom and tribal law. So you, you get a, a bit of a, a, a mismatch. Um, so, and, and the way they drew the boundaries doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, that's it's pretty clear. Um, and so you get in country. I think Ghana alone has over 200 dialects. So the country of Ghana has over 200 dialects spoken just in Ghana alone, right? Um, which means if you go from one part of Ghana, not even over to the other side, but just maybe over to the middle, right? They, they speak a different dialect, a different language, and so the arbitrary boundaries that were put in place make no sense for traditional African, African culture. Um, there was one point I forgot to get back to, and that was China. Um, China is always the, uh, the question. So one of the things he brought up was, um, right, China is a communist country, right? Um, right China has got a ruling you know, communist party. Uh, they have their you know, conventions. They come up with their five-year plans and so forth. Right? In the West, we always mock those five-year plans. But China has become uh, pretty prosperous. Right? Um, so parts of China have, 
And the issue is the parts of China that have grown wealthy has been in what we call special enterprise zones. So um, it's these zones in China that were set up to basically be largely free enterprise zones. And this is where you've found the explosion of growth, right? Um, so, you know, great. I mean, allowing freedom, allowing people to grow is great. I think down the road, though, I think China is going to confront some transitional issues because they do have, they have, the, they have a balance, right? They have kind of a communist-style dictatorship, and it's going to start to run up against uh, the movement towards liberalizing reforms. Uh, they also have huge demographic issues they're going to have to deal with. China is getting very old. Their one-child policy was not wise. But like a, like a communist dictatorship typically does, uh, they don't stop with the mandates, right? They mandated one child, and then they realize, okay, that was bad. Now we're going to mandate two children. We're, we're going to flip. Instead of not having kids, you're going to we're gonna force you to have kids. Um, so I think the solution would be like, oh, what, why don't you just let people choose how many kids they want to have? Um, so China has a lot of other issues to deal with. Um, and that's why, for the most part, I think India's transition through all of this, I think, will be smoother. Um, but we'll see. But China is a bit of a paradox. Um, they have a communist dictatorship government that has kind of allowed free market capitalism to flourish in some parts of the country. And at some point, those will start to come into conflict. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton.org.